0: This is inside Geneva. I'm your host, Imogen folks and this is a Swiss Info production. In today's program,
1: all these girls are training to be cooks in the women's auxiliary air force. Participation of women peace and security. Obviously, it must go beyond and add women and steer approach. No worry about keeping slim-waisted
2: for these stout-hearted girls, and the army needs thousands more like them.
1: The world not only
2: needs participation of women, but also the feminist analysis on peace.
1: We used to laugh at girls in uniform, but they have proved themselves up to the hilt, 100%
3: capable. 30% of the delegates negotiating arms control and disarmament are women, so 70% are men.
2: What happens when security only considers half of the population? Put simply, It just doesn't work.
3: Hello
0: and welcome again to Inside Geneva. Now, listeners might remember that in our last podcast, I said we were going to be discussing whether the world would be a more peaceful, happier place if women had more say in the big decisions. Well, that moment has come. Today, we're going to take an in depth look at women in peace and security. How much influence do we have? What steps are being taken? And what more are needed? to make sure our voices aren't only heard, but that our ideas carry weight. To join me, I've got three experts in this field. Julia Hofstetter, President of Women in International Security, Switzerland. How we define security today uh, most often still neglects uh, women's needs. Renata hess Head of Gender and Disarmament at the UN's Institute for Disarmament Research.
3: Men can also take decisions that will improve women's lives.
0: And Maria Butler, Executive Director of the Nobel Women's Initiative. The Recovery Conference in Switzerland on the 4th and 5th of July. I was there. It was a total man show. Now, Julia, I'm going to come to you first because you approached me to say, this is a topic we should discuss on Inside Geneva. I, of course, agreed with you. But one of the things you mentioned was meaningful participation of women Insecurity. What does that mean? And indeed, what does your own organization
1: do about it? Thanks so much, and you know, it's a really big question. So maybe to start off quickly, a one word on what we as Wise Switzerland do. We are a Swiss civil society organization, and we are part of a, a global network that comprises over thirty national chapters, and that are headed by Wise Global, which is a Washington-based NGO and the world's premier organization dedicated to advancing women's leadership in international peace and security. We aim to support, connect, engage women working in international peace and security across Switzerland, but also to make women experts' voices heard in security policy debates and also to spotlight the gender perspective on security and peace. What does meaningful participation mean? The first thing that you think about when you talk about participation in the context um, of women, peace and security, the first notion that you get is that obviously it must go beyond and add women and, and stir approach, which means, you know, that mere inclusion in security policy institutions, the armed forces or even peace processes does not automatically mean that um, women will be included in identifying and shaping policies. Sort of the mere presence of women at the table is not enough to ensure women's voices are really heard and that women's rights and needs are actually incorporated into these policies. When we talk about meaningful including women's issues in security policy, I think we also need to ensure that we integrate a gendered perspective on these policies, especially when we define what security is and whose security we are talking about. And I think in order to allow this to happen, not only to diversify the voices in the room, but you also need um, structural changes. And if you want to really guarantee meaningful participation and impact of women and women's organizations also in security policy, um, you really need to allocate funding. You know, you need to allocate budget to these issues. This is also, you know, I think one of the core principles of the new feminist foreign policy agenda. Renata, we heard from Julia,
0: meaningful participation is certainly not just add women and stir, and it also requires funding, always a difficult ask, and particularly these days. Tell us, um, from your point of view at uh, Unidir. I know you've been working with Julia at Weiss, so tell me a little bit about what you do.
3: Thank you very much, Imogen. It's a pleasure to be here with you today. Just as a bit of a background about our work at UNIDIR. UNIDIR, you know, it's an acronym for United Nations Institute for Disarmament Research. As the name says, we do research on disarmament issues, on arms control and disarmament issues. And we have a dedicated program on gender and disarmament. And this comes from the recognition that... Gender plays a role in arms control and disarmament issues at different levels. One of them connected to what we're talking today is women's participation, women's meaningful participation. Our research has showed that disarmament uh, diplomacy tends to have a lower level of women participation than other areas of diplomacy. If you go to the Human Rights Council, you will see in the negotiations a very like balanced composition of teams, 50-50 men and women negotiating issues related to human rights. And then you just switch room here in Geneva, you go to a different room, and they're discussing arms control and disarmament, and then you will see a big gender imbalance. Our research shows that approximately 30% of the delegates negotiating arms control and disarmament are women, so 70% are men. And the gender imbalance is greater in smaller, more specialized forum, as well as in leadership positions. So it's important that we bring the numbers, that we raise awareness and that we work together with countries, but also with civil society organizations, also with the media to make sure we have fair, equal representation of women, and they are given the same chances to shape the outcomes of arms control and disarmament issues. So that women are not only um, considered an important voice when it comes to issues related to family, to children, to social affairs, but that they are also considered experts and relevant actors in the field, quote-unquote, considered as hard security field, like arms control and disarmament. And one example I can tell you, uh, some countries established a Women in Cyber Fellowship to sponsor women diplomats attending uh, cybersecurity meetings in the UN. That has had the impact that more women were taking the floor to deliver statements and to have an active role in participating in the discussions around 40% of the interventions being delivered by women in cybersecurity in this specific fora. And then you also have to go beyond the issue of, you know, who's sitting at the table. We also have been doing work on, for instance, what are the issues related to gender and cybersecurity? And then a next step also is to make sure that we don't only have women in the room and they get to participate, but that we also have women survivors, women affected by those issues. Maria Butler, how does the Nobel Women's Initiative
0: fit into this?
2: I, I fully agree. The world would be a safer place if it was more equal. The Nobel Women's Initiative was founded by women that won the Nobel Peace Prize. They were sitting together having tea in Kenya and they decided, let's work together. Because the world not only needs participation of women, but also the feminist analysis on peace, to look at the structural causes. Uh, we just came back from a delegation to Ukraine, to Lviv, and to Krakow, Poland. Our visit there with three of the Nobel laureates, Leyma Bowie, Tawakal Karman, and Jody Williams, was to listen to bear witness. And we heard so much about the loss, uh, the loss and separation between families, which is highly gendered. All the crisis, our world is so gendered. Uh, We all live this through the global pandemic, where we saw domestic violence increase. And we see it in Ukraine today, where over 80% of those displaced are women. Uh, we heard from survivors. We heard about the risk of trafficking to women in the conflict, and we heard about the resilience of, for example, women train conductors. Eighty percent of the train uh, staff in Ukraine are women. Uh, they continued to work to move thousands and thousands of people from the south, from the east, to safety. They looked at us in in Lviv at the train station, and they said, um, "You know, we." We knew that these trips could be a one-way trip for us. So women are risking their lives to save people. They're working for access on rights and negotiation spaces. But I guess my point is it's the peace and security frame is not just these conference rooms or or track one negotiations between global powers or the UN Security Council. The participation of women is in the train stations, in the schools, in the shelters. And we saw women across the world mobilized to support Ukraine. And for sure, our world would be a safer place if it was more equal. And I totally echo what Julia said. It's it's about structural change, too. It's not just about changing the players. Just to end, something that always stays with me is an Oxfam report that shows that eight men in the world, billionaires, hold the same wealth as half of the world's population. Eight men hold the same wealth as the poorest half of our world. We don't want four men and four women to hold that wealth. The system, the economic system, that enables inequality needs to be addressed and needs to look at how we can share wealth, share power, share participation in politics and peace and security.
3: We live in a male-dominated world with a male-dominated culture. And an additional problem is the fact that we've had 76 years of male secretary generals.
2: Guterres has pointed out that more than half of his executive team are women. For now, it appears that's as close as any will get to leading this organization.
0: You've all addressed very well what we need, integrating more women, meaningful participation. Now, Renata, you made the point that if you go to human rights, it's very equal regards gender. Then you go to disarmament, it's not. We've had a number of female UN human rights commissioners Female heads of UNICEF, female UN refugees. However, the big, big posts, we've never had a woman UN Secretary General. We've never had a woman Secretary General of NATO. I mean, we must have a lot more to do if we want to get up into the real high
3: echelons of power. I don't know when we're going to get a female uh, Secretary General for the UN, um, but I think the way we live and what we experience, there are still very much kind of this perception of leadership traits associated with, you know, masculine traits. I think the ideas of who makes good policy still very much associated with men. This is something that, you know, it's about cultural perceptions, about uh, stereotypes. It's about how uh, men and women are portrayed in the media as well. And I think it can change over time, but it will require a lot of time. When we ran the numbers uh, for our study on gender balance in disarmament diplomacy, we saw that at the rate of the current progress, it would take another two decades to have um, gender parity among uh, diplomats working on arms control and disarmament. But if we look at the heads of delegations, the challenge is greater. It would take us, I think, until 2065 until we have, you know, the same level of representation at leadership roles. I think some people can say, yeah, women, be patient, your time will come, 2065. But uh, we can also take action and do things in a way that challenges harmful stereotypes and that allows women and men to, you know, live up to their full potential.
2: According to the United Nations, it's more dangerous to be a woman in a conflict zone ...than it is to be a soldier.
1: When you asked us to, if we could think about any high-level positions... ...that are, are um, currently um, filled by women... ...and you know, I was thinking about it and what came to my mind was... Uh, ...Rose Gothenmuller, who is former NATO Deputy Secretary-General. I feel like a lot of the deputy positions are filled by women... Even though the head of NATO is a man, NATO, and using it sort of as an example, because it it is one organization that's very much based on these notions of, you know, very traditional security, very hard security notions. So I think it's really interesting to see that even NATO is paying more and more attention at least to the issue of women, peace and security. You know, they have a um, a special representative on women, peace and security. And what I think is also really interesting to see within NATO is that they're more and more acknowledging a bit more diverse view on security. So they're also emphasizing human security, which sort of, you know, prioritizes the individual security over nation state security, which I think is a really important basis in order to include women's specific vulnerabilities uh, and rights so i think this is a really important step also to sort of provide a culture of how we think about security a really important basis for including more women um, in the dialogue but also in leadership positions when russia
2: invaded ukraine ivan was on duty traveling his regular route For more than 10 years, the train conductor served passengers between Zaporizhia in the southeast and Lviv in the west.
0: Maria, you were talking about train staff in Ukraine, and you said 80% are, are women. Now, I would never, ever have known that. I've seen, I think, three different reports from Western media, one from British media, German, and I think Swiss, doing this story about the heroic train crews evacuating Ukrainians from places like Kharkiv, and each time they interviewed a male train driver, so I would never ever have known that it's primarily women who were who were doing that job. so I guess I guess it's also I mean my own profession has more to do with this respect of what images we, we show people. I mean it can't have been that hard.
2: yeah, I love this because it is about our own power and questions, whether you're working in the UN whether you're a journalist it's asking where are the women which women who's being silenced and how we can include them because the work around including and meaningful participation is in everyone's hands it's not in just uh, the political leaders Uh, we actually have uh, started a, a database called interview her some years ago nobel women's initiative where it links journalists with local experts in conflict situations and says these are the experts it is also about shifting international communities biases about who are the experts on constitution, who are the experts on disarmament. And let me tell you, we met hundreds of women, uh, volunteers, CSOs, mothers leaving with their children. All of them have hugely valuable testimony, but also insights and analysis of what makes sense. And again and again, even in Ukraine, but also we can talk about Colombia, Yemen, Afghanistan, Korea. Women are doing the work yet are not being included in these international, interagency decision-making forums, in the dialogues that happen, for example, on the Recovery Conference in Switzerland on the 4th and 5th of July. I was talking to a colleague, she said, I was there. It was a total man show, like going back in time, panels full of male experts, of political leaders, but where were the women experts the civil society? Those working day and night, let me tell you, across Ukraine and across the region, saving lives, and they have a, a huge, huge, valuable expertise to bring to the solutions. And there's a whole loads of rhetoric on localization and so on. And a lot of it is rhetoric. I think we've become so good at that uh, part of talking the talk. But when you see these big conferences on reconstruction, dialogues on wheat, again and again, they're 100 percent almost, or at least in the high percentage, male leaders running the show and making the decisions.
0: Juliet, yeah, I so see you have your hand up because I, I want to bring you in there. Maria was talking about this Ukraine recovery conference hosted by Switzerland. Did you have a word with the, the Swiss about that, about it being male dominated? Because my experience is sometimes when the world is in a crisis that people say, oh, yeah, we
1: completely agree with you, but we're focusing on this right now. So you have to just wait a bit longer. As as Maria has mentioned before, you know, if you look sort of at the the really high level um, decision making bodies of the member state level, um, we do see like there's still really a lack of implementation when it comes to the Women, Peace and Security agenda. But then again, if we look at local levels, if you look at what civil society movements are doing, I think the discussions on Women, Peace and Security and Women's Inclusion are quite advanced. And I think there's also, uh, you know, really a growing transnational network of women rights organizations that advocate for women's inclusion and in peace and security. Yeah, but obviously, I think, you know, Besides these really important local level and civil society engagements, obviously we do, we do need more commitment from um, support by and also access to these traditional and established security institutions. Women's issues are often framed as sort of secondary or they're sort of seen as something that's part more of a um, social justice agenda rather than a security agenda. But I think as you've seen in the context of the Ukraine or, or even like if we look at the COVID pandemic, you know, they showed how diverse security threats are that we are currently facing. So these notions of these traditional hard security issues, they just don't manage to you know, capture the current security challenges that we are facing. From health politics, uh, economic threats to wartime threats in Ukraine. But also, you know, if you think about, you know, personal safety and human rights in the context of um, abortion rights, for example.
0: I have a slightly more awkward question bubbling, and that is that you've all argued for more representation of women in these really, really important decision-making fora that affect us. The assumption sometimes is that if there are there, things might be better from our point of view. Let's look at the US Supreme Court. There is a woman on there she did approve rolling back Roe versus Wade. We have quite possibly the next prime minister of the UK will be a woman. She is at the moment arguing in her speeches for a vastly increased defence expenditure, consequence probably a reduction of foreign aid or development aid, humanitarian aid. How do you address that? The fact that you could well get lots more women, they might not agree with you. I was
2: born in Ireland um, when Margaret Thatcher was the Prime Minister. She's far from a feminist leader, a peace leader. So you're absolutely 100% right. The next Secretary General shouldn't just be a woman, but has to be a woman, but should also be a woman with lived experience, a woman with commitment to human rights and feminism, a woman willing to address the structural causes that we've talked about. So you're absolutely right. Having women's representation is necessary, but it's never sufficient. It's never enough. That's not the end. But it is critical that parliaments, that local mayors, that our businesses, that our schools are equally represented with women in in decision-making positions. But that is not the end of the women's movement. That is not even the demand of the women's movement. And for sure... We have heard about, I think here, the need to work on ensure women's rights, the commitment to women's rights and leadership. And I know from the laureates who have worked in leadership positions and with leaders around the world, this important connection with those small number of women that get into the room, how they connect with the community, how they continue to connect with women outside the room is essential. And that takes a lot of time and resources. And it takes also um, the ability to
0: think differently about leadership. Renata, you wanted to come in there.
3: I agree with you, Imogen. I agree with Maria. You know, the mere fact of being a woman does not necessarily translate into change. So that's why we also work building knowledge about women's participation, about gender issues, because at the end of the day, men can also take decisions that will improve women's lives. It doesn't have to be, you know, that only if women are present, we can discuss issues that will enable women's equal rights. And I think one example from the field of arms control and disarmament, for instance, we have this armed trade treaty, which has a clause linking and demanding that uh, states parties assess the risk that weapons will be used for gender-based violence. And that was negotiated... By a group that was, you know, majority comprised by men. So, you know, men can also take a stand against gender-based violence, against violence against women, and take meaningful action that will prevent and protect uh, women in different situations. If now we don't have equality and in participation at the official level of the negotiations, there are also these opportunities for countries to work together with women's rights and civil society groups to make sure that their demands are translated into and feed into the process. So this is not to say that women are absent from security negotiations. No, they are very much there. But a lot of the times there is some sort of invisibility to their role because they are not you know, the official, they are not the ambassador, they are not the secretary general. But they are still very much there and, you know, trying to make positive change from whatever angle they can.
2: The Taliban have systematically destroyed the rights of women and girls across Afghanistan since seizing power nearly a year ago. Women's rights are under threat in Afghanistan. Afghan women fear for their livelihoods and in some instances their lives. I I think it's really important to underline that today it is extremely dangerous to be an activist working on women's rights. We saw in Colombia in 2021, 12 women human rights defenders were killed. This was despite the participation in the peace process, despite the gendered provisions in the peace process. In Afghanistan, uh, we have seen a year of pushback after the takeover of the Taliban, and women had worked extremely hard to make gains and are still working. Outside and inside the country. So, and whether we're talking about the US or other uh, contexts today in Myanmar, in Sri Lanka, across the world, we are seeing a huge pattern of both pushback, but also attacks, killings, silencing of women activists. And like never before, I think we need to work collaboratively across the system, the ecosystem of social justice to support women at the community level to be safe. And to be able to speak up, because you can't participate if you're not safe. If your family is receiving death threats, if you're being evacuated, if you're being silenced,
0: it's it's a very very important point to make. We are actually already over time. What I'd like to do, though, look to the future. Given that we are, the world is in a very serious situation. We have a war in Europe. We have a food crisis. We have A COVID pandemic, which, despite many people feeling better about it, is not over yet. In my experience in trying to push for my own rights and and women's rights, you often have a conversation, I touched on this a little bit earlier, that, yes, but we've got so many other problems now, that we'll just have to wait. How do you address that, each of you? And just briefly, what would be one or two key things You want to do now to really practically, pragmatically increase the participation of women in international security. Renata, Maria, and then Julia, you get to give us the final pearls of wisdom. Renata?
3: You're right. Uh, Women's issues are perceived, you know, as some sort of luxury for prosperity times and when we are in crisis mode oh no 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 now we have to deal with you know other things and later on we can focus on on women's rights but uh, our message must be that uh, women's rights and gender equality should be part of the crisis response from day one it shouldn't be you know something that you come to think later when the crisis is solved. No, these are issues that need to be considered throughout because they matter on the ground and they matter on people's lives and they matter every day. I just like to share, you know, in our research, a lot of the times people come to us and say, oh, do you have data that including women's makes for better policy outcomes? Actually, there are some statistical analyses about peace processes and how they tend to last longer when women are consulted and included. There is data about countries' stability when women are part of the parliament uh, at a significant level. And this has been linked to you know, uh, preventing reoccurrence of conflict, so we can find uh, data points that will support arguments in favor of women's inclusion. But I just find it interesting that nobody come and ask, "Oh, do we have data that excluding women makes for better policy outcomes?" So it's about questioning the way we approach the topic as well. Clearly, uh, excluding women and you know processes where only one party is consulted is not sustainable. It's not right. This is a decision rooted also in fairness, justice and equality. And if we stand for that, we should be supporting women's meaningful participation throughout our actions. Maria? I, I do think the world is
2: at a turning point. And um, as you mentioned, these crises, and we need to look for alternatives to the status quo. And I, I do believe that local communities, local solutions led equally by men and women and those affected are the way forward. So I hope that wherever we are in our places, whether it's with Nobel Peace Laureates in research in policy and journalism, we can ask questions about where are the women, who's being silenced, which women, and push forward for more equal decision making and also more concrete follow up and i and i've seen amazing diplomats amazing un staff amazing journalists be able to make practical changes in those moments when we were evacuating our office last year from afghanistan it was a huge ecosystem of activists someone issuing a visa someone holding an airplane someone mobilizing around you know making a makeshift wheelchair to get into the airport so I do still believe in this great system of, of uh, sisterhood, of solidarity, of a global system that can work for a belief in humanity. And it takes individuals to be able to do that, to stand outside the mandates that we've been given or our or descriptions and work for a bigger purpose.
0: And that all starts with asking questions. Julia, final words to you. We had practical from Renata, practical from Maria, but very optimistic. Do you share her optimism?
1: I mean, kind of, um, maybe also to make a a practical example. um, When I think about, you know, what the next step or the first step needs to be in in pushing for more gender equality and peace and security is to uh, realize that, you know, how we define security today Most often still neglects uh, women's needs. And so this sort of reminds me of a conversation I had um, in the context of um, the new Swiss security policy strategy that was launched last year, that I had with someone from uh, the defense ministry actually. You know, and I said to her that, you know, I was sort of surprised to see that there was no um, gender perspective to the new strategy and women's issues or, or women in general were just not mentioned at all in the whole document. You know, and she replied, why should there be? You know, the strategy is gender neutral and the threats discussed, they concern everyone and every citizen. And, you know, I would disagree because I felt that sort of the key security issues that are particularly relevant for women uh, were completely missing in the strategy. But it was really difficult to point out or or explain to her that, you know, how we define what security is or, you know, which topics to uh, prioritize is often very much gendered and not neutral at all. And I think that women's vulnerabilities often do still get neglected compared to men's priorities. So I think we need to really make clear that we really need to, to emphasise that if we do not have peace and security for all genders, we don't have peace and security at all.
0: Thank you very much. A really interesting discussion. And I would propose that we return to this over the next year because I don't think we discuss it Often enough, what I would say, just in closing, what I have drawn from this conversation, though, is, of course, women have to be at the table, at the highest tables, whatever their points of view are. But, of course, the people affected, survivors, people affected in crises, in conflict, must be there to women so that they can bring their own perspective, the reality, to the table. And finally... That the fact that there are multiple global crises—pandemic, war, food insecurity—is not a reason to push women back down the ladder. It is all the more reason to put us further to the top. Julia Horstetter, Renata Hussman-Daliqua and Maria Butler, thank you very much for joining Inside Geneva. reminder you've been listening to inside geneva from swiss info you can hear more by going to our website swissinfo.ch we explore other key humanitarian challenges too from the future of the united nations to the war in syria to look at the history behind the ottawa convention against landmines and of course you can subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts i'm imogen folks thank you again for listening
2: discover science and innovation in switzerland with the swiss connection podcast in the current series we visit cern and explore what they're up to next in their quest to solve the mysteries of the universe We uncover groundbreaking discoveries in a Roman archaeological site and get the first glimpse of an exciting supersonic plane powered by hydrogen. From the tiniest particles to the vastness of space, satisfy your scientific curiosity by listening to the Swiss Connection podcast for a mind-expanding experience with Swiss Info. Listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure to follow or subscribe to get your latest episode on time.